It's podcast number 12, and we're discussing late onset NTHFR deficiency. Hello, welcome to another episode of the JIMD podcast. There's a European flavour to this edition as I'm joined by two of the authors of the recent paper, Clinical and Molecular Characterization of Adult Patients with Late Onset MTHFR Deficiency, Dr. Cecilia Morelli and Dr. Fanny Michelle. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Good morning, James. Now, you acknowledge in your introduction that 5-10-methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, or MTHFR deficiency, normally presents in infancy. I wonder if you could briefly explain what MTHFR deficiency is and how the late onset form is different. So MTHFR deficiency is an autosomal recessive disorder affecting the remethylation of homocysteine into methionin. And uh, the enzyme, MTHFR, catalyzes the transformation of uh, 5-10-methylene-tetrahydrofolate into 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate. And this 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate is a critical methyl donor source in the remethylation of homocysteine into methionine. Therefore, MTHFR deficiency is biologically characterized by an increase in plasma homocysteine with low to normal methionine. And the increased homocysteine is responsible for a neurological toxicity and for an increased risk of vascular events, mainly venous thrombosis. While decreased methionine is responsible for a decrease of essential methyl donors, which are involved in DNA methylation and myelin synthesis. That's why this uh, disease is important and uh, causing neurological dysfunction. So MTHFR usually presents very early in life, in the neonatal period, with a severe encephalopathy, seizures, feeding problems, hypotonia, apnea. But there are some patients presenting with a late onset form and sometimes a very late and adult onset form. These uh, patients uh, present with slowly progressive neurological symptoms. Sometimes they can have acute decompensation. And uh, globally, these uh, cases are rare, but we think that they are also underdiagnosed and their natural history is largely unknown. Thank you. So your work obviously concerns this late onset form and it's one of the largest, if not the largest series of adult MTHFR deficient patients with a late onset disease described. How did this work come about? Well, it was definitely by uh, clinical observation. Um, I run a neurometabolic center for adult patients in Paris and uh, Basically, it's running after one diagnosis and another one, which were really actually adult onset patients presenting with a, a peripheral neuropathy or typical seizures. That, uh, that really raised the question of uh, whether or not there are other uh, patients with uh, such late onset. And by late onset here, we really mean adolescent and, and adult. So it was really the start of this question. And then with Cecilia, we collected cases starting in France. And then we reached to uh, the HEHAT project to try to gather more European cases. And this is how we came up with this series, basically. And can you share what you found? So in our paper, we included uh, 14 patients with a median age at onset of 20 years. 
And uh, we confirmed that late onset MTHFR deficiency have an almost uh, exclusive neurological involvement with gait difficulties, uh, cognitive, uh, psychiatric problems, uh, peripheral neuropathy, seizures. And finally, these symptoms lead to a significant impairment in patients. And we found that plasma homocysteine was increased in all the patients, even at the pre-symptomatic stage. Therefore, plasma homocysteine is a, a very good diagnostic biomarker for this disease. However, homocysteine levels were comparable in early and late onset form, and so they were not correlated to disease severity. We also found that uh, even in patients with uh, a, a very long-lasting disease, an appropriate treatment, mainly based on betaine, was able to decrease homocysteine and uh, stabilize and even improve clinical symptoms. We said that uh, Homocysteine is a good diagnostic biomarker, but it's not correlated to disease severity. In our series, we have the measure of the MTHFR enzymatic activity for four patients, showing an only mild to moderate reduction. And this is different from what previously reported in early onset severe cases. So we think that uh, the residual enzymatic activity is correlated with disease uh, severity, better than plasma homocysteine. And uh, finally, we found that patients with uh, MTHFR deficiency had uh, many different and private uh, pathogenic genetic variants. Uh, however, we found that some variants were recurrent in late-onset patients, and uh, that uh, missense mutations in the C-terminal part of the gene were over-represented in this series. And this suggests uh, some kind of genotype-phenotype correlation. Now, one of the things that you reported on in the paper was that you saw psychiatric symptoms and seizures more prevalent than had previously been described in this patient group. I wonder if you had any thoughts about that or even the high prevalence of, of obesity that you observed compared to population levels. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, regarding the psychiatric symptoms, uh, this is something that actually is, is common in late onset forms of uh, inherited uh, metabolic diseases. There are definitely changes in uh, brain metabolism with age. And, and this is related to different things, to neurotransmission, to myelination, to involvement or rather cortical versus subcortical areas with aging, and especially, again, during the process of uh, brain development. So it's actually quite common to see psychiatric presentations of uh, metabolic disorders uh, that present in adolescents and, uh, and adults. Uh, regarding the seizures, because overall we had twice more psychiatric symptoms and seizures than reported, Regarding seizures, it's, it's more um, puzzling for that matter. So we actually definitely would have, and actually both observations would have to be repeated in other courts. But uh, we do not have a clear uh, explanation for that. Um, and in, in none of the patients, they were actually uh, extremely severe seizures either. So can that have been missed in previous cohorts? Uh, if it's a possibility or it's just a, a bias from our cohorts, uh, that's another possibility. So we, we have no clear explanation for that. And regarding obesity, even less, 
we, we do see patients with inborn errors of metabolism uh, that tend to be overweight or obese sometimes when they are on specific diets since they were children. Uh, we, we know that for, uh, for patients with a low protein diet, for example, who tend to have high sugar and, and lipid intakes. Uh, and that's actually a problem that we have to deal with in the adult metabolic field. But in the case of this patient, obviously, they, have, they do not follow any kind of diet, and the diagnosis was made late. So this is really the most puzzling observation of this case series, and definitely warrants further um, um, observation in other series, but also maybe looking in animal models where uh, this may come from. I wonder if I could take you, sorry, I wanted to come back to another thing that you've highlighted in your paper, where I think you discussed the case of a, a, a man in his 50s who was found to have AMTHFR deficiency, but to be completely asymptomatic. We're moving into an era where people are increasingly looking at genetic screening for disease. And obviously, with a well-defined pathogenic variant, you, you could screen someone as having this disease or with some biochemical changes, but no clinical phenotype. I wonder, I mean, do you foresee that's going to, uh, that's the sort of thing that could present confusion going forward? Do you think there could be lots of asymptomatic patients out there? And yeah, I don't know how that would end up affecting management and, and what you would do with them. Well, I think there are two sides to your questions. Um, we actually are often uh, confronted in the adult metabolic field to patients with uh, variants in MTHFR that are basically considered um, non-pathogenic or that may be risk factors, the thermal label uh, variants. And actually, those ones are very uh, frequently encountered. And, uh, and actually, we, we see patients coming more and more for advice for, for these variants. But actually, when they do not present with uh, hyperhomocystinemia, we tend to uh, disregard them. And we, we have to monitor folate deficiency in this patient because the combination of this kind of polymorphism actually together with folate deficiency may lead to hyperhomocystinemia, but otherwise it's not. So this is actually something that we encounter and that we do not consider as disease. The other thing is that homocysteine has been considered as a risk factor for many neurodegenerative disorders and, and also psychiatric uh, symptoms. So it's not rare to see on the other side patients coming with this question about mild hyperhomocysteinemia and, and the relationship with the methylation defects, etc. And uh, not so, so much, I guess, in Europe, but in the US, uh, this question actually has been raised a lot and overtreated, definitely. So, so I think that there is actually possibly extra uh, attention to, to the matter uh, for things that we do not consider really uh, as disease. On the other side, as Cecilia said, it is likely that they are real disorders, and that means uh, NKHF4 deficiency proven uh, with the reduced uh, enzymatic activity, and the fibroblast is uh, possibly a good uh, way to measure that. But also hyperhomocysteinia, that even if it's not correlated with disease severity, we still think it's a good marker to say that, uh, that the patient should be followed because it is somehow associated with at least the thromboembolic risk. So in, in the case of this asymptomatic individual, of course, it, it's puzzling and we don't know what may happen uh, for this patient. But we still believe that if you have elevated levels of homocysteine uh, above 100 micromole per liter, it deserves uh, treatment and attention. So, so I guess it's two extreme uh, aspects of paying too much attention to polymorphism and, and slight elevation of homocysteine that possibly is really not pathogenic versus missing some real deficiency that maybe sometimes are not symptomatic, but most of them are. So, so I think we do not overtreat those real MTHF4 deficiency. 
Thank you for clearing that up for me. So um, finally, uh, late onset NTHFR deficiency is a treatable neurodegenerative disorder that often takes years to diagnose. I think you were talking about the mean symptom to diagnosis time of 16 years in the paper. A guideline for the management of NTHFR deficiency was published in the last couple of years. Looking at that and the work you've done here, when should this diagnosis be suspected and how should it be investigated and treated? Well, as Cecilia outlined uh, regarding the phenotype that was uh, the most prevalent in this patient, we definitely recommend uh, to measure plasma homocysteine, which is an excellent biomarker to pick up the disease, as we mentioned, in any adult or, or adolescent or of course even child, with and explain uh, pyramidal signs or cerebral syndrome or seizures. And uh, of course, if there is intellectual uh, disability, uh, because if this may have been missed, if it's mild, and or some kind of cognitive decline, uh, we think that this would deserve attention. So it's actually really a broad indication in the field of adult neurology and even internal medicine uh, to, to measure this, uh, this biomarker. But we think that the outcome is really important. And when you have elevated plasma homocysteine, there, there are easy markers that then you should be measured with the blood levels of vitamin B12 and folate, and then measure methionine in the plasma and methylmanonic acid in the urine. So these are really easy biomarkers to orientate the diagnosis of hyperomocystinemia and then read MTH for deficiency. And I think you had a question regarding treatment. Uh, betaine is definitely only treatment with proven efficacy in an MTH for patient, and most of our patients uh, receive that with good, actually, a clinical response. And this is something that we see in the adult metabolic field, that even if you start treating late, you do have a clinical response, and especially actually on the pattern of seizures or psychiatric symptoms and stabilization of other motor deficits. So you should also seek for uh, vitamin B12 and folate deficiency. They are associated, but otherwise, betaine is definitely the treatment of choice. That's perfect. Thank you both for your time. Speaking as a generalist, it's so important to highlight these conditions, especially those that are so amenable to treatment, and especially when the benefit of early treatment is so clear. Now, if you'd like to read the paper for yourself, go to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease web pages and search for late onset MTHFR deficiency. And if you'd like to hear more from us, just search for JIMD wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Cecilia and Fanny, thank you so much for making time for me this morning. Thank you, James. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening at home. I hope you'll join us again. Goodbye.